when I was growing up, um, my, I have an older brother. He's five years older than me, great older brother. I, I learned never to cross him because he was so much bigger and older than me that if I did, I would pay dearly, very quickly. Um, but then as I got older, I eventually beat him in basketball when I was in seventh grade. That was a great day. He was a senior in high school, and I beat him in one-on-one. That was... But I never crossed him much because he would make me pay, so I didn't do it a whole lot. I remember, you know, when you get on his nerves, he might like, you know, he wrestle and he pin an arm back or something like that. I remember one time he got, pinned my shoulders down and he pulled out a spoon and started tapping me on the forehead with it. <laughs> just, just kind of sadistic, really. Um, sort of like water torture, you know. Didn't hurt uh, physically. But, um, you know, and so what do you scream out when someone's doing that to you? I don't know why we say uncle. Like, where did that come from? We don't say aunt or grandma. I mean, it's so weird. Uncle. But no, when we say uncle, what we really mean is, you know, mercy, right? <laughs> stop. Please stop. It's my safe word. Please leave me alone. Enough. And sometimes I think when we think of mercy, we tend to think of it as leniency of just a get-out-of-jail-free card, and then I'm good. But what if to God mercy is much more than that? What if mercy is the good and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit within us? What if mercy is more than leniency, but it's the good and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit within us by faith? On May 15, 1957, Billy Graham started his most ambitious crusade he had ever undertaken, which was in the city of New York. And they went into Madison Square Garden and reserved Madison Square Garden for eight weeks, which that by itself is an ambitious goal, to try and pack out Madison Square Garden for eight weeks in a row. And they did. They, they started in Madison Square Garden, and they intended to end the whole series of meetings for two months to end it on July 20th, 1957, when Yankee Stadium was packed out with over 100,000 people, which that time was the biggest crowd Yankee Stadium had ever had. Martin Luther King Jr. gave the invocation at a number of Billy's meetings. But as you did with those meetings, um, it was, well, here's what happened. After the Yankee Stadium thing, they extended it until September 1st. They sold out Madison Square Garden for 16 weeks. Over 2 million people attended something in the New York tri-state area. And uh, over 60,000 people made decisions for Jesus Christ. And an estimated 96 million more watched it on television at least once. Unprecedented. Now, when you have these kind of meetings, though, when you have all this logistics and people, and of course it takes a lot of money, of course, and... They have to take up an offering, and you know, every night they do that, and well, as it goes on in New York City, someone's going to break the law eventually. <laughs> I mean, come on. And someone breaks into their offices and steals the entire offering for that week, which in 57 money was probably tens of thousands of dollars, cash, and the, the guy eventually gets caught, of course, and he gets arraigned in a court hearing a few weeks later, and they asked Billy Graham to come, and this is a true story, come and testify in the courtroom. And when it came time for him to testify, he said, Your Honor, Jesus said, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Your Honor, I do not want to press charges against this man. I would like to offer him a job. Now, granted, it probably wasn't in the accounting office. (laughs) I don't know what job he got, but he gave him a job. What if mercy is not just leniency, but it's the grace of God that believes in you more than you believe in yourself? In a world of where there's false judgment and the love of many has grown cold, Jesus' words speak out across the generations that we are a people in need of mercy. That Jesus is a friend of sinners. And that really is the hope of the world. That he's the only one that can forgive sin. That with all our technology and all of our accomplishments, the human race will never be able to atone for our own sin, for our own ethical and moral and spiritual guilt. We cannot do that. Only Jesus can forgive sin. And Jesus knows that. And that's why he's, one of the reasons, he is a friend of sinners. Because he knows without him, we will die in our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, God made the one who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That on the cross, Jesus, in the moment where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, was, he became sin. He took, he, was, he took the judgment that you and I deserve to take for all people for all time. He didn't have any sin, but he became it for us. And his life, even leading up to the cross, exemplified that every single day. He had no sin. He's the only sinless person who ever lived. And yet he hung out with sinners every single day. And he wasn't afraid to get, you're not going to catch sin. It's not like cooties or something. You know, he hung out with all of people like us every day. He was a man of the people, eating, drinking wine, having a good time, loving people, not having a loaded agenda, but just being with the people that God loves. And of course, crowds followed him everywhere he went. But when the Spirit is moving and God is changing lives and he is working in the the world, the enemy of our souls hates that. He's anti-everything that God wants to do. And so he's always there in the corner while wheat is growing, he's there sowing weeds and you know, discontent and false accusation and division, and that's what was happening. Jesus was always being pressed, he was always being watched, he was always being confronted, he always had the right answer. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is walking through a field with his disciples, and there are people watching him and waiting for him to fail. And it's on the Sabbath, which to them was Saturday. Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Well, that would be considered working, wouldn't it? And the Pharisees saw it, and they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful. Okay, how close do the Pharisees have to be to see this happen? (laughs) They are like right on top of these guys to know that you just picked some piece of grain off and you ate it. So they are, they are not just, they don't have binoculars. They are on top of these guys. It's not lawful to do that on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Jesus said, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. 
Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath? They're working, right? They're doing work, and yet are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, he's going to quote Hosea from the Old Testament, I desire, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. If you had known what this means, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, if, if your ceremonial religious duties clash with love and mercy, what's the purpose of it at all? If the purpose of Sabbath or any religious rules, are they intended just to feel superior? Or are they intended as a vehicle to make you more like God and to grow in love? The Sabbath is always intended for the good of people. I mean, Jesus said that. He's like, God doesn't need the Sabbath. It's for you. It's for you to rest and be with your family and forgive debt and to prepare for the week to come. But don't use it as a weapon. I mean, Jesus says to them, we can, you can break the Sabbath today because I'm with them. The Sabbath was my idea, Pharisees. <laughs> I came up with it. I don't need it. I'm the Lord of that Sabbath, but you're using it to wield it as power and to control, and you've forgotten the purpose of what it's all about. I mean, what pleases God more, being loving or being right or both? I think you can do both. You know, the answer, of course, is mercy. Jesus is saying, he's quoting them something they already knew. They knew Hosea. You're not operating out of place of mercy at all. And you're not, making, you're not pleasing God by having that attitude. You need to bring God, the, have a heart of mercy to the people around you. You know, in the book of Matthew, Jesus would talk about that again, where he said, hey, if you're in the temple and you want to offer up a sacrifice to God, but you've got a wrong relationship out here with somebody, put these sacrifice down and go get right with that person first. And then come back and finish your worship. Because what pleases God more is having a merciful heart to the people around you and making those relationships restored as much as, as you are able. So mercy, yes. And some Christians just stop there and don't articulate anything further. It's, it's not that this understanding of mercy is incomplete. It's not that it's wrong. It's just that it's sort of incomplete. It's, it's not that we just, God just gives sort of a cheap grace to everybody all the time and then we can keep doing what we want to do. Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about mercy. Either if mercy is leniency, that's a whole host of problems. But if mercy is the empowering presence of God within us, there's a lot of hope in that. Because if mercy, if it's a mercy that just leaves you where you are, how in the world is that good? If it's a, but if it's a mercy that leads you forward, there's hope in that. There's hope in that. Jesus is saying that mercy should always precede the sacrifice in worship. It should always be the impetus for why you even do Sabbath. That it should precede your obedience to, fo to following God. But it doesn't negate the Sabbath. It doesn't negate worship. Did Jesus say to the Pharisees, you know what, it's okay to break the Sabbath. Oh, just, just be nice to people. Don't honor the Sabbath anymore. No, he didn't say that. 
Did he say, don't go back up and pick up your offering after you get right with your friend? Don't worry about it. Just worship. You can do it later. No. He said, go back and complete it. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus calls people out, these Pharisees out, for showing no mercy. Um, actually, a few chapters earlier in Matthew, he, he'd already told them this in another account in Matthew chapter 9. The Pharisees are following Jesus. Uh, Jesus is having a meal in Matthew's house, or someone's house, with a bunch of other people. And houses back then were small. The rooms were small. The windows were right out on the street. You could easily walk in and peer in you know, and see what's going on. And the Pharisees are waiting again, and they look through the window, and there's Jesus around a table having a grand old time and being with all sorts of people. And they have a problem with that. In Matthew 9, starting in verse 10, And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. You know, the subtext here is that the, the, the Pharisees are saying to them, hey, you're hanging out with Gentiles? You're supposed to be a rabbi. You're hanging out with probably Samaritans in the room. That's half-blood, or muggles, if you want to use Harry Potter language. They're half-Samaritan and Jew, okay? You don't hang out with those people as a rabbi. You're not, you, don't, you're going, you don't touch them. Because, I mean, in their mindset, this is what they're thinking. Hey, the Lord called us out of Egypt to be a separate people. Therefore, in our distinctiveness, we are holy, and you are doing the opposite of that, Jesus. You shouldn't be with these people. So that's, that's what they're thinking. But here's what Matthew and the other tax collectors and people in the room are thinking. They're eating food and they're drinking and they're having a good time and Jesus says what he says and they probably stopped and thought, hey, did Jesus just call me sick? Yeah, Matthew was probably Southern. He was probably Southern. Did Jesus just call me sick? Did he just say I'm sick? Did you just hear him say that? <laughs> Jesus, I'm sitting right here. I'm right across the table. I thought you were a friend of sinners, but you said I'm sick, that I'm not righteous. I thought I was perfect just the way I am, Jesus. Is God's mercy leniency, or is it the good and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit within us? Is God's mercy affirmational or transformational? Does Jesus offer these people on that table transformation? or mere affirmation? Is mercy just leniency? What sort of mercy is Jesus getting at? This is a hugely important distinction to make. That if it's just leniency, you get off the hook, get out of jail, you're good. If it's just leniency, then you, and it's just God affirming whoever you are, whatever you're doing, then you will eventually, myself included, will revert back to whatever sin you can't shake. Those cycles of mistakes that you hate about yourself. You'll continue to fall back into those patterns because there's no standard being offered. There's nowhere to go. There's no goal to shoot for. There's really no hope in that. And if God is good, why would he offer me a mercy that has no hope? 
But if mercy is the good and empowering presence of the Spirit within us by faith, that's a mercy that keeps my head up when I fail. And we will fail. That's a love that hopes all things, endures all things, believes all things, that will keep going and going and going. That's a mercy that you can look at someone and go, you know what, God isn't finished with you yet. And he's not finished with me yet either. That he loves me in the midst of my crisis and my addiction and my messed up mistakes I've made. That he's with me in it. And I'm not, I've, not, I've not arrived yet. You know, you and I, we are not in much different than the guy who broke into Billy Graham's office and stole the offering. In a sense, we all have broken the law. We all have broken. We all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory. Romans 3 says, the glory of God, but we're now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. In short, yeah, we've screwed up. We fall short. We all know that. God in his mercy, though, still looks at us and says, I'd like to give you a job. I want to put you in my team. I see something in you that you don't see in yourself. And I believe in you. I'll believe in you to the day you die. See, the mercy of God is not a supply problem. It's a demand problem. Right? It's, a, it's not a supply issue. It never runs out. The roadblock is people. It's our choices that we can or cannot make to receive that mercy for ourselves or not. The primary message of the church has always been the forgiveness of sins. That is our, one of our distinctive messages that we get to proclaim to the world. And you have entered this church today or at home, wherever you are, you have entered this experience today for whatever reason. But I would argue with you, the primary reason you deep down are here is to receive the mercy of God. You need the mercy of God. I need the mercy of God. Because without it, I will die in my sins. To know that not only are you pardoned, yes, but that he also wants to give you his good and empowering presence of his Holy Spirit within you. And how do you receive it? We receive it by faith. You receive it by faith. And you might be thinking, that sounds a little bit weak. But no, actually the most important things in life we receive by faith. It is through mercy that is like a door being opened to a whole new life. And that's why those guys were sitting with Jesus around the table. That's why they couldn't get him out of their minds. Because he's, he's, he's loving me in a way no one's ever loved me before. Because all I've ever known in this world is either harsh legalism that they're offering or just this sort of wimpy, weak worldview that doesn't change me in any possible way. And Jesus is coming to these people. He's being full of grace and truth simultaneously, holding them both in that tension. But that's who he is. That's who the heart of God is. I don't want a God that's just like me. I don't want a God that tells me what I want to hear. See, Isaiah 55 says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the mountains are higher than the sea, so my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. See, God sees your life in ways that you can't even fathom. If, if, you, see, if you saw what, would hap- what happens when someone stops to pray and ask for mercy, you would never stop praying if you saw what was happening in the Spirit. 
And all of heaven rejoices with us when we receive the mercy, someone receives mercy of God. Because it means that there's one more person that, that's, that's got it. And that's what God wants for all of us. As we sing these last few songs, I encourage you to pray to receive the mercy for God for yourself on this day and to know that his spirit is present here among us. Let us pray together. Lord, with with your mercy and your love, it's never been a supply issue. But God, we, we tend to believe lies. We tend to think that it's too good to be true. God, I pray that you bring down those strongholds in our minds that get in the way of receiving your mercy on this day. And that God, that the depth and the width of your love for all people, it it can seem too good to be true. But we thank you, God, that we can receive your pardon and empowering presence of your spirit by faith. As you say, the righteous will live by faith. God, it's by your mercy that we can even claim to walk in righteousness or pursue holiness. Lord, as you freely give, I pray that we continue to freely receive. And then so doing, extend that grace and truth to all those that we meet. God, continue to heal our hearts. <laughs>